Uh, we've got two Bible readings today. Um, the first one is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Second reading is from 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 12 to 17. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Okay, it's going to be helpful if you've got those passages at hand, particularly the uh, first of those, the 1 Corinthians 15 passage that we are going to uh, spend most of our time exploring, although we will be dipping back into uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 5. Now, I want to uh, give a little bit of a, um, a caution up front. Can I say, I've really struggled with this passage this week. Uh, it's been quite tricky to get my head around uh, and that gives me a little bit of a caution when it comes to you guys because I have to explain something that I've really wrestled with uh, to, to you. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to ask that you cut me as much slack as you possibly can uh, and if you have questions after this that you come up and ask me, Okay, if there's something that's unsettled you, if there's something that you just want clarification on, uh, something you disagree with me, please do come up. Uh, I'll hang around the front here for a while. Come and ask me, get that clarification that is there. Because I think it's really important, and I think what God is teaching us here is actually something we need to learn. Uh, but it's something that is, uh, let me say, it's been a little bit difficult to, uh, to package neatly. And so uh, let's pray as we start and, uh, and see how we go. Father, I pray for myself this morning. I ask me, you that you'd give me uh, clear thoughts and clear words that I may speak your truth uh, to your people here in a way that is most helpful, uh, that builds them up in Christ. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would give them attentive hearts uh, open ears and uh, minds that are uh, acute so that they may judge uh, what is said against your word 
uh, take what is profitable uh, and uh, leave the rest. Uh, And Father, we do pray that you would bless us this morning uh, in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've been talking uh, over the last couple of weeks about resurrection. Uh, We've been working through uh, one of the, uh, I would say, the classic purple passages, the, uh, the one of the key places in scripture where In this case, the Apostle Paul unpacks uh, the resurrection, not only Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection and what that actually means. And what Paul has been saying is that the resurrection is not just something about then, that it actually should impact here and now. And particularly today, the passage that we're looking at really does focus in on the impact that the resurrection has on life now. Now, let me ask you this question. I'm going to pause briefly. I want you to come up with your answer. I'm not going to ask you what it is, so you don't have to worry about being put on the spot. But how do you answer this? How do you answer this? It may be a question that you've never actually articulated an answer for, explicitly. But I think all of us have an answer to this question. Some of us may look at that answer and say that's never achievable and so they might despair. But the answer to this question is your answer to the question of how do I find a good life? How do I find a life that has significance, meaning, hope? And that is something that, like a compass, it orients our life. We have that vision and our hearts, our lives, latch onto it. And so it directs our choices. It shapes our values. It actually even defines our morality by telling ourselves what we are prepared to justify. It fills our imagination. Now, there was an Archbishop of Canterbury back a century or so ago called William Temple, and he quite significantly said these words. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What's he mean? He says, when there's not anything in your face, anything demanding your attention, when there's nothing that's clamouring for you to do or to think about something... And you've got freedom to just dream. What do you dream about? And he says, where your heart, where your mind goes at that point is your religion, your true God. Your answer to the question, where can I or or how can I be blessed? So what is that for you? What is it that we dream about and how does that impact our life? Now, this may all be a little bit abstract. So 1 Corinthians 15 is going to make it a little bit concrete. It's going to make it real. And so we've got some points. Here they are. Uh, You'll find them on the Sunday Hub. But uh, if you're taking notes, making it real then and there, making it real here and now and watch out. And as I said, it's a tricky little passage. So work with it uh, and we'll see how we go. What does this look like? 
What does it look like to make it real back then in 1 Corinthians 15 time? In the church in Corinth, what does this actually look like? To have a vision and see it determine life. Let me give you a positive example first up. So you've the Apostle Paul. So how does the Apostle Paul answer our question? How can I be blessed? Paul goes to God. Paul goes and he says this in verses 9 and the start of verse 10. He speaks of himself as the least of the apostles, not even deserving to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Here's a man who is defined by what Christians call the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ. So where does Paul say, or what does Paul's answer to, how can I be blessed look like? He sees that through the hope that is held out in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Christ died for sins and rose again on the third days. And that that, not just for him personally, but that is the centerpiece of God's plan to restore all things. What the Bible speaks of as the new creation. And how did that affect his life? How did it affect his values? How did it affect his choices? Well, you see Paul here. He speaks of sacrifice and service. Verse 30. He says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves? Why do we put ourselves in danger every hour? Verse 31, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. The implication is that he's telling the Corinthians it is for them and ultimately for God that he faces death every day. And he goes on in verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Whether he actually fought wild beasts or whether this is a metaphor for the human opposition that he uh, he faced in Ephesus, it's unclear. Uh, We're pretty sure he didn't get thrown to the lions, but maybe he was traveling and something beset him at the time but whatever it is he faced something that posed a real threat why because he was on mission he was there proclaiming the death and resurrection of the lord jesus and you see how that hope it shaped paul he risks his life he faced death he fights wild beasts why because god is at the center And the hope that is his and that is ours in the gospel defines him. And God used Paul to transform the world. Now, you may not know, um, the BBC is hardly the centrepiece of pro-Christian propaganda. uh, But this is what they say of the Apostle Paul on their website. Paul is undoubtedly one of the most important figures in the history of the Western world. A man sold out for the hope that was held out to him in the gospel. And God used him to transform history. Another historian said alongside Jesus, Jesus is number one, obviously. Paul is number two 
in the history of the Christian church. Why? Not because he went out there to seek his own glory, but because his hope was set upon God and what God had offered him freely through the gospel of Christ. There's a positive example. Let me give you a negative. It's called the Corinthian church. What's their answer to our question, how can I be blessed? Well, they would say God, but there would be an and at the end. See, the Corinthians, they're keeping a foot in each camp. They'd received the gospel. It's there in verse 1 of chapter 15. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. These people are Christians. But then if you read the rest of the letter, you'll see that not all is hunky-dory in the church in Corinth. We go back, and I want to tease out one particular uh, one particular part of the letter, but you could go back to numbers of these places. There is something else happening in the church where Paul was sold out for Jesus. The Corinthian church, we've got Jesus, but we need something else. And in chapter 5 and 6, The Corinthian church is seen to be wrapped up in the sensuality of its age. So we read this in chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And from the passage that Bree read through, he says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute here we have a church where paul he's not with them he hears about these things they're sleeping with prostitutes a man is having a relationship we believe not with his biological mother but probably with his stepmother and they're okay with it the corinthians are there saying god the gospel but we need this this is something that's drawing them into it didn't they know it was wrong well of course they knew it was wrong acts tell us that paul has spent over 18 months there and there are jewish converts as part of the church who would have known god's standard for sexual ethics from the old testament they would know this is wrong so what happened they've said god The gospel, Jesus, yes, but I need these things. There's justifications that are coming in. They embrace beliefs that actually let them, in their minds, have their cake and eat it too. They distort, they subtract, they add. And so we have their slogans, Bree read it for us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, they say, I have the right to do everything. Where does this come from? Probably from the belief that they are heirs with Christ of all the heavenly riches. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, you've begun to reign and that without us. They've claimed this identity that they rule with Christ 
And so they are behaving like the most immoral of the pagan kings. I have the right to do anything. I am a child of God. They have taken the status that God by his grace has bestowed upon them in Christ and used it as a license, a license for immorality. Verse 13, you say, Paul reports, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. We talked about this last week. They had reclaimed the Greek idea of spiritual good, physical bad. That the eternal life was going to be disembodied spirits, not flesh and blood and bones. And so what we do with the body doesn't matter. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They had smuggled this very Greek idea back in. And like we saw last week, this is not what the the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that the new heavens and the new earth is a recreation. It's not disembodied spirits, but it is physical. As Jesus himself said in Luke 24, does a spirit have flesh and bones as you see I have? The Corinthians had these wrong ideas, particularly about the resurrection, but also about grace that led them into the most horrendous immorality. Sleeping with prostitutes. Sex with your stepmother. And that's okay. They tolerated it and embraced it. But Paul actually points out in one of the trickiest verses in the New Testament that they are being inconsistent. Because they're saying the physical doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. We are heirs with Christ. We are saved by grace. We are secure in him. It doesn't matter how we live. But Paul brings up this. Verse 29. We're back in chapter 15. We're going to stay there now. He says, now if there is no resurrection, in other words, if the dead, we are not physically raised from the dead, what then will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptised for them all? Now, that's clear, isn't it? You've worked that one out. (laughs) What is this thing? Baptism for the dead. It's the only place in the New Testament that it's mentioned. There's a couple of references to it later on in church history, but where they're going, what's he actually talking about? It's most likely the Corinthians are going and getting baptised on behalf of people who have died and are not baptised. We can't really be sure, but there's a few things I think we can be crystal clear about. Number one, Paul is not endorsing this. So don't think you should go and do it. So Commitment Sunday is coming up. Don't say, well, my auntie passed away. She wasn't baptised. I'd like to be baptised on her behalf. We're not going to do it. Sorry, it's not going to work. But what he is doing is he's pointing to this and saying, this is a contradiction. You Corinthians, you say that the physical doesn't matter because you've, you've brought in this Greek idea 
that physical is bad, that spiritual is good, that spiritual is eternal, that physical is temporary. And that lets you do whatever. So why does getting baptized for the dead even make sense? At a, at a basic level, because you show, Paul is saying, that you really do believe that what you do in the body now impacts eternity. What you do physically now impacts life in the next, in the new creation. Paul here is making a point to say, actually, Corinthians, you're being inconsistent. But can I say, brothers and sisters, don't get hung up on it. Uh, I don't think it's really the pivotal point of the passage. It's just one of those things that made perfect sense to the Corinthians. And we can get Paul's point, although we can't be crystal clear about what baptism for the dead actually is. So there's some examples. Paul sold out for Jesus, this hope, and it transformed his life into sacrifice and service. The Corinthians, yeah, they love Jesus, but they're also caught up in this world. And so they smuggle in these ideas that lets them embrace immorality of the worst kind, along with their Christian confession. What about here and now? This is where we get a little bit nasty. So be warned, strap yourself in, okay? Let me give you the positive first. I could give you so many examples. I've been pastor here for now for three, almost three and a half years, and I could, I could name names. I'm not going to, so don't freak out at the moment. But they share, your brothers and sisters, they share with Paul the answer that he gave to our question, how can I be blessed? That blessing comes through their hope that is held up in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in a relationship with God himself. And you see it in lives transformed, lives of generosity, lives of sacrifice, lives of service, of witness, of obedience. Look around at your brothers and sisters. Be encouraged about what God is doing amongst them, what God is doing through them. As they see the hope that is set before them in the gospel and life is transformed. What about the negative? The one who says Jesus and. God, yes, but I need this. Let me give you some. Some points, I could go into lots of different areas. I've picked on three. They all start with P, because I like alliteration. And you can remember it anyway. Parties, number one. Unfortunately, I would love to be able to say that we are not like the Corinthian church, that the church in Adelaide, that the church in Australia, that the modern church around the world is not like the Corinthian church that had embraced this immorality. But I can't. Immorality is alive and well in church, in every church I've served in. And I'm sure, although I'm not pointing particular fingers at particular people, I'm sure it is alive and well with us this morning. 
I wish that I could say that Christians were different. But our world is a world that throws itself into this. And it tells us that we need this. It saturates our media. It saturates our education system. It tells us that we need to find fulfilment in physical expression, particularly sexual expression, but not just limited to that. That a sexual ethic defined by scripture that sees sex expressed uh, in a monogamous relationship between a a man and a woman in a lifelong union sees that as the norm and calls us to that. It sees that as deviant. Why would you do that? And we live in a world that is pushing this line. And we are not immune. The Corinthians lived in a world that pushed the line, spiritual good, physical bad, what you do with your body doesn't matter. It doesn't impact then. We live in the same world. Slightly different twists. They tell us that if we wait for marriage to express our full sexuality in a sexual union between a man and a woman, there's something wrong with you. Why would you deny yourself that? We have an idol, an idol of pleasure. Whether it's sex, whether it's alcohol, I would love to say that Christians didn't struggle with this, but they do. Drugs. Maybe it's a desire to fit in, to be in part of the crowd, to not stand out and have everyone look at you and go, you're really weird. You're somehow deviant. Maybe it's a desire to numb the pain of life, to just take the edge off. Maybe there's all sorts of reasons. We need Jesus, yes, but I need this too. Let me give me a second P. Parties, number one, partners. And can I say, this is one that sucks Christians in tremendously. It is an incredibly powerful desire. The idol of a relationship. The idea that we must have that significant other in our life, that our children must have their partners for that to be a fully blessed life. Can I just point out just how wrong-headed that was? Jesus, single guy. Paul, as far as we know, single guy. Many significant Christians throughout history found fulfillment as people without tying themselves into that one, uh, that that close personal uh, relationship defined by marriage. We idolise that and we lose the brother-sister. We lose the power of friendship. We idolise this. And so when the time comes... And maybe we find that person who doesn't share the commitment to Christ that we have. But we're saying to ourselves, 
I've got God, but I need this. We compromise. Or maybe you're in a relationship and the pressure to stand and to be holy within that relationship is really tough. But you don't want to lose them. You don't want them to say, well, you won't sleep with me. I'm going to go find someone who will. And so you compromise to keep that relationship. Parties, partners, praise. This is a tough one. That idol of success. Who doesn't want to achieve? Who wants to be mediocre in this life? Anyone? Do you want people looking at you and going, yeah, okay. You know, they're not really that impressive. You want to stand out. And we have a society that longs for this. And even if you're okay, parent, being mediocre, you don't want your kids to be mediocre, do you? No, you know, you want them. You want them to be standing on that podium. You want them to excel. You're afraid. This thing, FOMO, fear of missing out. And if it's not for you, it's for, for them. And you justify it on all sorts of reasons. So we program ourselves to the max. We make sure our kids or ourselves, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Because that fulfillment of experience. Because if I don't give them every opportunity to shine, they won't. Yes, I want them to have Jesus, but they need to have this as well. And so what I've seen in decades of Christian ministry is parents saying, actually, something's come up on Sunday morning. There's a kid's party. There's a sport game. There's music rehearsals. There's extra tutoring. There's all these things because we want our kids to be musical. Yes, and music's a great gift. We want them to play sport, but yes, sport's a great gift. We want them to uh, excel academically. Like, don't get me wrong. God has given us brains. He wants us to use them. We can justify this endlessly. But what I see and what I've felt as a parent myself is that pressure to put sport before church, music before youth group, to set hearts on, yes, Jesus, but something else and what i've seen is eventually what happens is our kids work out that jesus actually isn't that important and sports way more fun and music's way more fulfilling and academic excellence is great and so they embrace those and they walk away from god and the hard thing is is that it's not classic immorality You're not missing church to go to the brothel. You're not there saying, I want to embrace, I want to go and get drunk this morning. So I'm not going to turn up, Cameron, I'm going to be intoxicated at home. No one's ever said that to me. Surprise, okay? But can I say, if we reduce sin 
to actual acts of immorality. We miss, we miss its depth. Sin is seeking from others what we should only get from God. Seeking that blessing from something else where ultimately the only place we can get it is from God. It's not just doing the wrong thing. It's an issue of where your heart is. It's saying God is not enough. What Christ did through his death and resurrection is not enough. And so we say, Jesus, yes, we use him as an insurance. But then we go and seek fulfillment in every other area. Parties, partners, podiums, take your pick. How do we know? Well, this is where we come back to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had their slogans. I can do anything. Food for the body, or food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. They had their justifications. And so maybe you're sitting there this morning thinking, wow, Cameron's laying on a bit thick. Legalism. He's being so legalistic. I hope I'm not. But watch that. You might be saying, we're not saved by our obedience. And can I say, brother, sister, you're right. You're not. You're saved by the perfect obedience of Christ. But Jesus also says, if you love me, you will obey me. The person who knows who they are in Christ, what he has done for them, will love to obey him. That love for him will overflow into obedience. I'm saved by grace, you might say. This sounds a lot like law. Well, I've used this illustration before. That's like me saying, my wife loves me so much. She would never turn me away. She would never turn her back on me. So I can go have affairs. Isn't that great? It's abusing. It's abusing grace. It's taking advantage of God's riches to us in the life, death and resurrection of Christ. It's saying Christ dying on the cross. Actually, that gives me permission to sin. Brother, sister, come back to your senses and stop sinning. For some of you are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Let me tie up. It's been a bit heavy, I know. What's Paul say? He says, watch out. Watch your company. Do me not be misled. Verse tw- uh, it's verse 30, actually, I think, or 30-something or other. 33, okay. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He's quoting a Corinthian poet at this point, a guy called Meander. He's saying something that they would recognise as just common wisdom. You hang out with the wrong people, it leads you astray. And that's what Paul says, that we are affected by others. By their positive examples, yes, but by their negatives. 
do we find ourselves, our conscience eased by others' sin? You see them doing it too, and you think, oh, good, someone else thinks this is okay. It's a dangerous place to be. And Paul says the most dangerous person in this category is the one who claims Christ but will not live in obedience. The one who claims to be a Christian who embraces sin. Chapter 5. I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It's a hard word. But here Paul is in more detail saying what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. Bad company corrupts good character. You think this is a bit judgmental? Well, think about how judgmental we've been recently with COVID. You know, those people, you step towards them and they step back. You kind of freak out a bit. The worst comes to the, the worst situation. Okay, you catch COVID and you die. Okay. The worst situation in this situation is that they lead you into error and away from Christ. And what you do now impacts eternity. Grace is not there to be abused. Watch your company. Watch your doctrine. Verse 34. Come back to your senses as your ought. Stop sinning. There are some who are ignorant of God. They had embraced theology that permitted them to hang out at the brothel. They had embraced theology that enabled them to share fellowship with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. They had embraced theology that permitted sin. Ignorance is never a virtue. It is never a virtue. But it is never something that we cannot overcome. A disciple of Jesus is a student and we are here to learn. Are you part of a growth group? Are you seeking to grow in your knowledge, not just about God, but of him himself? Now, what I did this morning, and I'm aware I've gone a little bit long, so I apologise for that, is I went across to the office. We have all these shelves covered in books that myself and John Warner back in history have bought and so forth. Uh, And I've put a whole lot of them down the back. They are good Christian books uh, and they are free to a good home. So maybe you haven't read something outside of a novel or the internet or the newspaper. Grab one of those and set it your task for the next couple of months so you just work slowly through it. We should be seeking to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. And lastly, let me say, what's your heart? Ask yourself that question. How can I be blessed? Think about where it is that your mind goes when it is free to go where it wants to. Because it will track to where your heart rests to where your true God is. Are we drawn to God or are we drawn away? Do we seek to immerse ourselves in his grace? 
to cultivate our hearts in his love. One of the best ways to do that is to be regularly in his word. Another way is to be regularly amongst his people. To be praying, to be praising, to be declaring his goodness to one another and to him. There's so many more things I could say, but I won't. But as I said at the start, if I've raised issues for you, if there's things that you want to clarify, come and speak to me. If there are things that you need to talk about at that deeper level, if there's things that God has put on your heart that you are, you've seen, yes, I am someone who is saying God and. Brother, sister, don't let that go. Don't just wipe it away under that justification. Actually, I'm saved by grace. Let's just go get a coffee and talk about how the crows just really aren't working this, this year. Actually, ever, really. Uh, but anyway, let's not go there. We can lose the power of what God is doing through distraction, through justification. Talk to me, chat to Matt, talk to Jane, talk to your people around you, people you know, people you look to as those positive examples. And ask them to pray for you, ask them to pray with you. Talk through this issue. Work it out. Because we have a great hope that is held out to us in the gospel. We have a hope of a resurrection into a renewed, restored creation where God will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. That is our hope. And do not let anything get in the way. We're going to very appropriately sing.